All right, getting on into the sermon, <coughs> I felt Larry's sermonette was very good in terms of detours or reroutes uh, that we have to go through in life. I like the term reroute particularly. When we first come to a knowledge of the truth, we are on a path that is leading us where? There is a way that seems right to a man, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. That's the path we were all on. Narrow is the way, and straight or difficult is the gate that leads to life, but broad is the way that leads to destruction. We were on an easy path to destruction. <clears throat> now, if you've been on detours, reroutes, which I'm sure you have, Generally, they are rougher and crookeder and more winding than that which you were on. If they're working on a highway and they route you off on onto the somewhere else, you have a rougher go. Now, God routed us completely different to what we were doing. He put us on a rugged, narrow, ruddy, difficult road. In fact, he turned us around the other direction. Normally, when you're following a highway, it'll sort of take you over and down and around and back to the route that you were on. Now, speaking from a spiritual standpoint, that wouldn't help, would it, to go back to the route you were on? It only does you good if God takes you off that wide, broad way that's easy, that leads to death, reroutes you and turns you clear around and sends you in the opposite direction of where you were going, promising you that it would never become an easy, broad avenue, that it would always be rutty, rugged, and difficult, filled with tribulation, trouble, trials, and difficulties. That's the road he put us on. He rerouted us entirely. So when we came into the church, we had a reroute. Now that we have been in the church a while, many settled down and thought, we have the truth, we can just coast on with what we have. But we are told to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Savior. We are never to sit still. We are to continue learning. And if in God's church and our experience, we are not occasionally rerouted to get around difficulties, to make the way clearer, to remove rocks from the road. We are not growing. Now, I'm going to pose some questions to you today. <clears throat> Does the symbol of baptism, baptism enter the Passover? If the symbol of baptism enters the Passover, where does it properly fit? Does it fit foot washing? Is there another place it fits or fits better? And does foot washing represent baptism? at all in the Passover service.
Baptism as a symbol in the foot washing has been used to argue that the foot washing comes before the bread and wine. Is that a valid argument, or is it not? What is baptism, and how are we baptized? We are baptized by immersion. We go completely under the water. Protestants baptize by sprinkling water, for the most part, on the head. Catholics do as well. There are a few Protestant denominations who baptize by immersion. Very few. Most sprinkle water on the head. I submit to you that if you do not immerse, you cannot understand baptism and the meaning of baptism, nor can you understand the Passover service. God ordained the baptism be in a certain way. Immersion. Going completely under. And he did it for some very, very important reasons. Most of our teaching about the Passover has come from Protestants who do not baptize and do not understand the Passover. There's a movie which has just come out which is supposed to show the violence of Christ's sacrifice, what he went through, and even the one who produced the movie says that it was not violent enough because the scriptures, the psalmist he mentioned, showed that you couldn't even recognize him as a man. And he did not go that far. His audiences couldn't take it. And for the most part, they're not going to be able to take what has been presented. The producer is a Catholic. Apparently, he's come a little closer than any movies have in the past, but somehow I can't take a long-haired Jesus, and I don't like that vision in my mind and therefore I choose not to see it, among other reasons. You do as you please, but uh, you're not going to get the full picture. I'll guarantee you that. You will be emotionally caught up in it, and you will understand certain emotions perhaps better. But God describes it pretty well in the Bible, and I think that I have a pretty vivid imagination personally, and I can imagine what it was, I do not necessarily have to go see some man's presentation of it. I, I somehow just, I don't know, somehow I just can't see some man acting as an act of Christ. That, that bothers me on some level. Anyway, that's an aside. I didn't mean to get into that. Let's go to Psalm 106. Psalm 106. And here I want to pick it up in verse 7. There's something critical here for us to understand. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers understood not your wonders in Egypt. They went through it. 
They went through the motions. They actually walked out of there. They walked under and through the Red Sea, but they understood not. They didn't grasp what was going on. Did the disciples at the Last Supper, or Christ's Passover prior to his death, understand what they were doing? Did they understand the full implications of it? Further, do we understand it today? They remembered not the multitude of your mercies. It's easy to forget when God has forgiven us and we move on. But provoked him at the sea, even at the Red Sea. They provoked God. Did the disciples provoke Christ to one degree or another? Do we yet today provoke Christ? Do we yet today perhaps take the Passover in an unworthy attitude and approach? There is a danger of that, or Paul would not have warned about it in 1 Corinthians 11. How does it affect you and me? Was it only those Christians at Corinth who had a problem? Or do we, partially through misunderstanding, also have a problem? One that perhaps we have not fully addressed. Now, we have understood in part, and we have seen in part, but I do not believe that we have seen in totality. I believe our understanding has lacked. Even as they understood not at the Red Sea, I believe that we also have understood not. And I believe that it has affected us every year at the Passover to the point we have not been able to be what we ought to be. That what we have been doing has been basically correct, but we have not been getting as much out of it as we could have been getting out of it. They did not get as much out of it at the Red Sea as they should have because they didn't fully understand. And they provoked God. That's something you and I do not want to do. Nevertheless, he saved them for his namesake that he might make his mighty power to be known. It wasn't because they were anything, but in spite of them, he wanted his might and power to be known. And one way or another, in this end time, he is going to make his might and power to be known. He is going to be glorified. We can be a part of that if we do what we need to do. If we don't, we could be in trouble. In spite of them, he says, he rebuked the Red Sea also, and it was dried up, so he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. Do we ever feel like we're being taken through the depths? Yes, we do. 
The analogy still fits today. He rerouted them, didn't he? He routed them right through the sea. A place they didn't think they could go. Through something they didn't think they could handle. And the waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then believed they his words, they sang his praise, and they soon forgot his works. They waited not for his counsel, but lusted exceedingly in the wilderness, and tempted God in the desert. And he gave them the request, request, but sent leanness into their soul. And he goes on and shows the troubles they went through. And ultimately we know they wandered for 40 years and not one of them entered the promised land other than Joshua and Caleb. The rest carcasses were strewn in the desert. They went through that baptism. They went through that type of New Testament baptism. And they missed something. And what they missed caused them all kinds of problems, didn't it? Do we want to miss anything? Or do we want to get it? Herbert Armstrong used to tell us, Brethren, you're just not getting it. And I don't think we have gotten it. We've gotten it in part. We see in part. But we need to see more clearly. All right, let's go. 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, and begin in verse 2. Well, let's begin in verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant. Paul wanted to clue them in a little bit. He didn't want them to be ignorant. How that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And were all baptized under Moses in the cloud and in the sea. But Paul clearly shows that going through the Red Sea was a type of baptism. They went completely under the water, didn't they? The water towered above them. Had God released that, it would have done what? Drowned them. They were in dire circumstances. Had God said, I'm tired of this project, I think I'll go do something else, and release the water. Because under normal circumstances, water that is piled up like that, turned loose, would drown you, kill you, dead. That's the jeopardy they were in. And did all eat the same spiritual meat? This is important. And did all drink the same spiritual drink, their bread and their wine, their spiritual meat and their spiritual drink, was what? For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Their food and water, their bread, their wine, if you please, was Jesus Christ. And it is tied very tightly here in the analogy to baptism. 
that he was that rock who saved them. He was that rock they followed. But with many of them, God was not well pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. We should not be ignorant of this, Paul says. Now, these things were our examples to the intent. We should not lust after evil things, as they also lusted, or be idolaters, as some of them were, idolizing ourselves, along with other idols we might have. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. It was as if nothing really happened. Nothing of great import. They went back to their same ways of thinking, their same mental patterns. The rerouting through the Red Sea was not a permanent change in their thinking. Just as many of us have been baptized, but our thoughts were not completely rerouted, were they? We determined that we would follow God's way, and then sometime after baptism, we found that our thought patterns tended in the same directions they always had. In other words, we still had problems. And our problems after baptism were very generally much the same problems that we had before baptism. Whatever weaknesses you had and whatever areas your mind was not godly, you tended to go back to, just as they did. <clears throat> I think this is important for us to consider as Passover is coming upon us. Neither let us commit fornication, as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. Neither let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. How do we tempt him? He is tempted to destroy us if we don't come to things like he thinks and act as he acted. And we'll see more specifically that a little later. Don't murmur, complain, right? As some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happen to them for examples and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. We have to make the translation of the Red Sea to a spiritual analogy, in other words, of Jesus Christ being our rock, just as he was their food and drink, he is our food and drink. Wherefore, let him that thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. Now, we think we have understood, but I don't think we got the full message, and we need to take heed lest we fall. There has no temptation taken you, but such is common to man. Your problems aren't any bigger than anyone else's. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able. Maybe almost to that point, and sometimes we feel that way, but never to that point. You can take it, even though sometimes you say, I can't take it anymore. You can. And you will, and you do. Don't you? But well, with the temptation, also make a way to escape that you may be able to bear it. He somehow was able to bear the weight of that stake. 
though he had been beaten to a pulp. God sent some help, and he made it. Wherefore, my dearly beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men, judge you what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Now he's drawing the spiritual analogy and bringing forward them eating and drinking of Christ in the Red Sea and what we eat and drink of today. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. We are to be joined together with each other and with Christ because we partake of him. Now there's the first hint at what our relationship with each other should be. And if we think we can have a relationship with Christ and not have a proper relationship with each other, we have another thing coming. There is no such thing as you and me, Lord, the rest of these people don't matter. You cannot have a you and me, Lord, relationship unless it includes your brethren in God's church. It is absolutely impossible, and we shall see that. And that's what Paul is explaining here. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread, Jesus Christ. The baptism in the Red Sea, then, takes the food and drink, spiritually, that we have, and takes it directly to Jesus Christ's sacrifice for us. The bread and the wine, lo and behold, represents baptism with Christ. doesn't say anything about foot washing. It said his body and his blood. That should be clear so far. All right, let's go to Mark 1, Mark 1, and we will see this thought strengthened as we go. Mark 1, and let's begin in verse 7. John came and preached, saying, there comes one mightier than I, after me, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and unloose. Why did you stoop down and unloose someone's shoes? To wash their feet. John was saying that there is one coming who is so much greater than me, I don't even deserve to take his shoes off and wash his feet. He is that much higher than me. What we see here in John is an attitude of absolute humility. Who was not only, would not only have been willing to wash Jesus' feet, 
but who did not feel worthy to do so. It wasn't that he was above it. He was way too low to even consider it. Is there anyone you know whose feet you might have an attitudinal problem in washing? If so, you are not humble enough. Let's continue. Verse 8. I indeed have baptized you with water. But he shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Water is not enough. The Spirit of God has to be there. Otherwise, our attitude cannot be right. Without the Spirit of God, we have only the Spirit in man, or perhaps the Spirit of Satan available to us. And the Spirit of God in correct baptism is very important. In conjunction with that, let's turn to 1 Peter 4. 1 Peter 4. I'm building up to some things here, so be patient. 1 Peter 4, verse 12. Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. Maybe I needed to tie in Matthew 3 here before I go there. Let me flip back there just a moment. Matthew 3, verse 11. Matthew 3, 11. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Matthew adds to what Mark said, not just with the Holy Spirit, but with fire as well. That's the one I wanted, really, before I went to 1 Peter 4. I'll read it again in 1 Peter 4, verse 12 now. What does it mean, baptized by fire? Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you. So the baptism by fire, in part has to do with our Christian walk. We will go through fiery trials. And the whole world is going through a fiery trial of tribulation very soon because they have not accepted the true Christ and followed God's ways. The fiery trial we are going through is a personal thing, but it's about to envelop the whole world. The object of that fiery trial and tribulation is to bring them to humility so they will be willing to be taught. We are going through it now so that we might learn humility so that we might be taught. But rejoice, verse 13, inasmuch as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. Our baptism and the fiery trials that we are going through has to do with making us partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with the exceeding joy. 
If you be reproached for the name of Christ, what did he go through? Terrible suffering and death. And we're going through fiery trials in somewhat the same manner. He went through the fieriest of trials. He went through more than any man has ever gone through before. All right, now let's go to Acts 14. Add a little bit more to this. Acts 14, verse 22. One that you probably have memorized. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue... Wait a minute, I'm not in Acts 22, I'm in Acts 15. How do you do that? 1422 is where I'm trying to get. Yeah, that's right. Confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith and that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. One that you know very well. Revelation 1, verse 22. Not only us, but even more. Revelation 1. I think I wrote that down wrong. Oh, no, chapter 2, Revelation 2, verse 22. Behold, this is speaking a part of the church of God, Thyatira, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. So not only are we going through fiery trials, but at least parts of the church are going to be cast into great tribulation if they don't depart from the way they are thinking and acting. And I'm not here to say that's not us. We are in danger of that, all of us, because all these messages are to all the churches, be they specifically Thyatira or not. Now let's go to Romans. Romans 6. Let's begin at the beginning of the chapter. Romans 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, the more we sin, the more Christ can forgive us, and therefore we get more grace. And there's more grace in the world. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know you not. Don't you understand, he says, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. The wine of Passover represents the death of Jesus Christ. We are laying a background here for proper symbolism in the Passover. Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism into death. We were immersed, completely covered, when we went to be baptized. Baptism represents death. The death of the old man. 
Jesus Christ died, and we are buried with him in baptism. You begin to see some symbolism we may have missed. That like as Christ was raised, raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. The old man was to have died in baptism, and we are to walk in a new life, totally rerouted, totally new. Not in the old ways anymore. For we, if we have been planted together, what you do with the seed, you plant it underground. In the likeness of his death, we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Are we not told that baptism, as according to Acts 2.38, repent and be baptized? And that his death, as said by Paul here, is a type of our baptism. We're dead together with him. Our old man is crucified with him. <coughs> he goes on to explain that we should not continue to sin because the wages of sin is death and we will not be resurrected as he was resurrected if we live in sin. Let's go to Colossians 2. Colossians 2. And here I want uh, to begin in verse 9. Colossians 2, verse 9. Speaking of Christ, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. Our completeness is in Christ. In whom also you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, that is, the circumcision of the heart, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, he uses one example here. Christ was cut off from the land of the living. He died. That was his circumcision. Buried with him in baptism. So his death is an absolute, direct symbolism of our death in baptism wherein also you are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who has raised him from the dead. Let's go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3, verse 27. Galatians 3, 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ, It is not enough to have been baptized. We must also put on Christ, that is, become like him. He did not stay dead. Our old man is to die, and we are to walk in newness of life as a new man. To walk differently, think differently, act differently, to be different than what we were. We shall see that at the last Passover... The disciples didn't get that 
message. And I don't think our understanding of Passover has allowed us to get that message either. That's why Paul can then say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. If we were baptized and went through the representation of the bread and the wine, his body and his blood, as we've already read, we're all one with him. It doesn't make any difference whether you're male or female, Greek or Jew. One is as good as the other. There is a common denominator. All right, let's go from there to Matthew 20. Matthew 20. Now let's go to verse 17. Matthew 17. And Jesus, I mean, 20, verse 17. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said to them, Behold, we go up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man shall be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they shall condemn him to death. Now this is prior to going there. He was about to take them there, and he told them what was going to happen when he got there. And shall deliver him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify him, and the third day he shall rise again. Then came to him the mother of Zebedee's children with her sons, worshipping him and desiring a certain thing of him. And he said to her, What will you? Or what do you want? She said to him, Grant that these two, my sons, may sit, the one on your right hand and the other on the left, in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You know not what you ask. Are you able to drink of the cup that I shall drink of and to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? And they said, We are able. Now that is answering a question before you hear it. But he clearly shows the drinking of that cup, that wine, at that last supper or Passover, symbolized his death. And that it symbolizes baptism. If you're looking for the symbol of baptism in the Passover service, lo and behold, Eureka! We found it. It is not foot washing. It is his death. And we are buried in baptism with him. They say to him, we are able. Verse 23, and he said to them, you shall drink indeed of my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with they were going to be crucified also. 
They didn't know it yet, but they were going to be. So he said, baptism represents my death, and baptism represents your death. Now that's on at least two different levels. Our baptism is to represent the death of the old man, the old way of thinking and walking newness of life. But even above that, these particular men were going to be crucified, as he was, with the exception of John. Now I submit to you already, and we've not even gone there, that John got the message better than the others. When Christ instructed the disciples after the Passover was all done, he tried to get the message across to them that it wasn't just between he and them, but it was to do with their relationship to each other. And he talked about love for several chapters. They hadn't gotten it, and we'll see that they didn't get it at all. Because the same problem that he dealt with before they ever even went there came up again right after the Passover. They didn't get the picture. And we go and take the Passover every year, brethren, and then we walk away from there and fight with one another and get offended at one another and offend one another and we aren't getting it! Let's go to Luke 12. Luke 12, verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. God wants so desperately to give us the kingdom if we get it. Sell that you have and give alms. Provide yourselves bags with wax not old, a treasure in the heavens that fails not, where no thief approaches, neither moth corrupts. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's telling us something about ourselves. He wants to give us the kingdom desperately, but we tend to look to material things far too much. Let your loins be girded about and your lights burning. Be wide awake, be aware, have the light on. The light's on, is anybody home? Are we getting it? And you yourselves liken to men that wait for their Lord when he will return from the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, they may open to him immediately. Not say, where's my oil? Oh, my, 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 I don't have enough oil to see. Or like the young lady representing the church in the Song of Songs who said, 
Well, you know, I'm kind of comfortable. My feet are warm. I don't want to get up and go across the cold floor to open the door. And he leaves and says, oh my, I should open the door. Be ready to open immediately. Blessed are those servants whom the Lord, when he comes, shall find watching. Truly I say to you that he shall gird himself and make them to sit down to meet and will come forth and serve them. At the last Passover, he fed them, and then he sat down and pulled their shoes off and served them. We'll see that that is the correct order by symbolism. And if he shall come in the second watch or come in the third watch and find them so, blessed are those servants. Find them so, so what? So serving, as he served. And this know, that if the good man of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not have suffered his house to be broken through. But you, be you therefore ready also, for the Son of Man comes at an hour when you think not. Then Peter said to him, Is this for someone else? I'm paraphrasing. Because when you speak to people in a sermon such as this, or when Christ spoke to them, you tend to say, sit there and say, I wonder who he's talking to. Oh, I know who he's talking to. And names and faces start coming into your mind. And little do you understand, it's you. And the Lord said, verse 42, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season. He begins to answer the question. Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find so doing. Serving others. Taking care of the household of God. Loving, giving, kind, serving, helping. Not taking care of self. Serving others. But and if that servant in his heart shall say, My Lord delays his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and maidservants, and to eat and drink and to be drunken. Now this is a physical analogy. None of us would beat servants, would we? We don't even have servants, do we? We wouldn't get drunk, would we? So how could this apply to us? Well, what if we beat each other spiritually? Aren't we all the servants of God? Are we not all the household of God? What if we don't show the kind of love that Christ showed to his disciples and to us in his death and his suffering and in washing their feet? What if we don't do that on a day-to-day -day basis? Are not we beating people spiritually if we become offended at them, if we get upset with them? If we do not show mercy and patience with them, are we not beating them spiritually? Drunkenness spiritually represents the ability to do what you wish because you are wealthy enough to have wine. You are wealthy enough to do as you please. And here it represents someone who says, I will do what I do, and who cares about you? So spiritually beats others by attitude and by taking offense 
and various other ways in which we hurt one another rather than serve and help and strengthen one another. I gave a sermon on negativity last week, and yet even this week, I've heard people getting the moat out of someone else's eye rather than getting the beam out of their own. Still putting others down and belittling them and talking about their problems rather than working on their own. I might as well have been talking through a hole in my ear, perhaps in some cases, because you know who I was talking to, didn't you? You even probably thought of names, the people that I must have been talking to. The Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looks not for him, and in an hour when he is not aware, because that servant is going to be so busy doing other things and his own agenda that he is not going to be watching properly. He will not be spiritually aware. Cut him asunder and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers. He was a believer, but he's going to be given the portion of the unbelievers. And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, not got all over others, not become offended, not upset with others, but prepared not himself, neither did according to God's will, shall he be, shall be beaten with many stripes. Why do we emphasize preparing the bride? Because each and every one of us here is to be a part of the bride, hopefully. And just as Christ said, get the beam out of your own eye before you get the moat out of someone else's, he says, be sure and take care of your own backyard. Clean it up. Not somebody else's. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall much be required. I think we have been given much. Therefore, much is going to be required of us. And to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more. I am come to send fire on the earth. Fiery trials. I'll baptize you in fire, he said. And it'll be Gehenna fire. Ultimately, if we don't respond to the fiery trials in the meantime. <coughs> the baptism of fire, in other words, gets hotter and deeper as time goes on. I am come to send fire on the earth. And what will I if it be already kindled? But I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how am I pained till it be accomplished? Christ was in pain. And he said he had to be baptized in fire. He was going to go through the fieriest trial that any human being has ever gone through. Here again we have the symbolism of his death being the same symbol as baptism. Suppose you that I am come to give peace on earth, 
I tell you no, but rather division. And from there on, people would be against one another. And only those who had his spirit, his Holy Spirit, would be able to keep from dividing. And we have not had enough of God's spirit flowing through us and out to others that has kept us from dividing. We missed the point, and Christ divided us, because we did not have enough of his spirit to keep from being divided. We each sought our own way and our own agenda, our own path. It's time we got rerouted. Now let's go to Luke 22. Luke 22. I want you to notice something here. They had already been through the Passover service. They had partaken of the bread and the wine earlier, up in verses 19 through 20. Judas partook as well. His hand was still on the table in verse 21 after the bread and the wine had been given. So everyone who was going to partake of that Passover service had partaken of it at this point. Notice what he says to Peter. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren. Even though he had been through the change of the symbols of the bread and the wine and the foot washing, he still hadn't gotten the point. And the point Christ wanted to make to Peter was, strengthen your brethren. This isn't just between you and me, Peter. It's between you and the rest of the people. The problem after we come to Christ is not so much thereafter a problem between him and us as it is between us together, each other. That is what they didn't get. They thought if they could be near him, everything would be okay. But he makes it clear to Peter everything's not okay until you strengthen your brethren, till you gain your brothers, till you help them, till you support them. Not put them down, but help them. Let's go to John 13. John 13. And see what the foot washing was about. John 13, verse 4. He rose from supper, got up from eating, and laid aside his garments and took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now, they had already done that which has to be done between man and God. Symbolically, they had been baptized with him by partaking of the bread and the wine. Here they were going to do something that symbolized something entirely different. 
Have you ever seen anyone baptized by sticking their feet in the water? Not even the Protestants do that. They sprinkle water on their head. Christ was completely immersed in death. And baptism represents our death. That had already been done. He rose from supper and gave them a different thing to do with a totally different symbolism. Let's see that. He began to wash their disciples' feet. Then comes he to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Now, this is not something they had done when they first got there. <coughs> when you went to someone's house and you were wearing sandals and you got your feet dirty, walking in a dusty road, when you got to someone's house, they had one of the servants take your shoes off and wash your feet. Now, this is not something, this is not what was happening here. This is something that he rose from supper to do. They were already there. They were already eating supper. It should be translated, chapter 13, verse 2, or verse, yeah, verse 2, supper continuing, or during supper is the way most translate it. The meal is already there. It's already been generated. It's already been laid. They were already eating it. And he rose from supper and began to wash their feet. And Peter said, do you wash my feet? Verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, What I do you know not now, but you shall know hereafter. He said to Peter, You don't know what I'm doing, Peter. Yeah, I'm washing your little feet with those five toes on each one, and probably a wart, and an ingrown toenail, but you don't know what I'm doing. You don't get it. Right? Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash you not, you have no part with me. Now, we're not talking about his whole body here, are we? We're talking about his feet only. If you don't let me wash your feet, you don't have any part with me, period. No part with me in my kingdom or anything else. That makes this pretty important, doesn't it? All right, then, what does it symbolize? Simon Peter said to him, he didn't get the point, but he said, oh my, don't just wash my feet, wash my hands, wash my head, wash me all over. If I'm not going to have a part with you, if you don't wash my feet, I want to have a part with you, wash me all over. Now, I think it is interesting how Christ responded to that. Jesus said to him, he that is washed need not say to wash his feet. In other words, Peter, you're already clean. How was he cleansed? By baptism and by partaking of the bread and the wine which forgives sins. He had just done that and been cleansed. The only thing that was unclean were his feet. Why the feet? Well, in part, the feet symbolize Judas, which Christ immediately explains. He's clean every whit, and you are clean, but not all, for he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. Now, put another way, he's saying all of you disciples are clean, except one. 
I submit that they had to have taken of the bread and wine in order to be clean at all. But all of them were clean but one whose feet would carry him out to betray his Lord and Master. And in that sense, betray the disciples as well. Christ was betrayed, but so were you and I. By everything that Judas did. They killed our God. For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you are not all clean. Didn't have anything to do with the rest of the disciples being clean. He said, Judas isn't clean. What was Judas about to do? He was about to show the opposite of love. Betrayal to death is what he was about to do. In other words, he was not loving his neighbor or his master or you and me as himself. He betrayed God and he betrayed our God. He did an unclean thing to another human being and to God at the same time. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? He'd already told Peter, You don't understand. You don't get it. Now after he washed their feet, he asked the question again, Do you know what this is all about? He obviously saw they didn't get it. You call me Master and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. That is the point. We have to be humble and meek with each other. We have to love one another. We have to love each other the way Christ loved us. That's what this is all about. Did they have that kind of love? Go back to Luke 22. Verse 19, he took bread and gave thanks and break it, said, this is my body. Then he took the cup and said, this is the New Testament of my blood, which is shed for you, verse 20. But behold, the hand of him that betrays me is with me on the table. Some people have said Luke was all wet, but Luke got the story wrong. The Christ would not have offered the bread and the wine to look to Judas. Why not? Christ didn't come to save the righteous, but the sinners. He gave Judas every chance he gave anyone else. Peter was not converted when he took the bread and the wine. We had better be. Judas was not converted. No one was converted who took the bread and wine but Jesus himself. And after that had been administered, Judas' hand was still on the table. Judas didn't get it. And truly, verse 22, the Son of Man goes, as it was determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. 
He was the unclean one. Woe to him. The others were clean. They'd had the bread and the wine. They had gone through the symbolism of baptism, with, which means death, by partaking of that bread and wine. Yes, baptism has to be symbolized prior to or with the bread and wine. But we must understand from the Bible itself what in the Passover symbolizes the bread and the wine, or symbolizes baptism. It is the bread and the wine. We've seen quite a few scriptures to show that. It isn't foot washing. It's the bread and wine. That symbolizes dying with Christ. Baptism represents death of the old man. Foot washing represents humility man to man. That is the symbolism of foot washing. Now let's understand that. Woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Judas was the unclean one, not the others. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. They couldn't imagine who would be unclean enough to betray Jesus Christ. They hadn't figured out who it was yet. And this is after the bread and the wine. The same old argument came up that they had argued before. We read about those who wanted to be at the right hand of Jesus Christ. Just you and us, Lord, will be on your right hand and your left hand. That's the most they had gotten at that point. We want to be with you. We want to be with you eternally. We want to be in the highest chair in the kingdom. And after the bread and wine had been administered, they still hadn't gotten it. The same old arguments came up. Who would betray you? And there was also a strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. They not only argued about who it was who was unclean in his feet, who would walk on his feet and betray Christ. And in that sense, even though Judas was the man, they were all unclean, at least in their feet. They'd been baptized, they'd been cleansed. He said, you're, you're clean, but we have a foot problem here still. John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to stoop and take off the sandals and wash Jesus' feet. Humblest man who had ever lived. I'm not too good to. I'm not good enough to. See the difference? I'm not better than him and can't stoop to do it. I'm not worthy of that much. But they still had a problem here after the bread and wine had been administered according to Luke's story. Arguing who was the greatest. Who was the smartest, who was the best scholar, who was the best of anything. Hadn't learned that lesson at all. So he tried to explain. 
He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But you shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger. And he that is chief, as he that does serve. For whither is greater, he that sits at meat, or who that serves? Is not he that sits at meat, but I am among you as he that serves. I'm showing you the way the Gentiles do it is not the important way. The one sitting there eating is not the important one. He says, I'm the one who's doing the serving here. How did he serve them? He washed their feet. They didn't get it. They didn't even understand at this point, apparently, that the foot washing was to be a part of the Passover service that from that day forward. It took John to introduce that at a later date. Why? Because John got it and they didn't. He understood that the whole thing is about the relationship man to man. If we don't love each other, we don't love God. And Christ makes it very clear in Matthew 25 that how we treat each other is how he reckons we treat him. We can try to have a relationship properly with him, but if we don't love and take care of and serve our brothers, it means nothing. And he will judge us according to how we treat each other. It's that simple. And that is the message he tried to get across to them in all his words after the bread and wine were taken. And in the foot washing ceremony, which did not represent baptism, that had already been observed. Foot washing represented humility in serving one another. That is the context of Luke 22, and it is the whole context of John 13 and 14 and 15 and 16 and 17. He tried to get this across. Back in John 13. If I then, verse 14, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, the servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. This is something they missed. They didn't get it. Now, as to the order of the Passover, I think Luke is the one we have to look to perhaps the most. Why? Luke 1, what is his specific purpose statement regarding this gospel? For as much as many have taken in hand to set forth in order... He said, others have written to set things in order. A declaration of those things which are most surely believed among us. Others have set their hand to write about it, he says. Even as they delivered them unto us, which from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants or ministers of the word. He says, these people who wrote were eyewitnesses. He's going to address a situation. It seemed good to me also, having had 
perfect understanding of all things from the very first. He said, I had perfect understanding of these things from the very first. To write to you in order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the certainty of those things wherein you have been instructed. Luke is saying, if anybody got it messed up, I'm here to set it straight. And he said twice that his specific purpose was to set it in order. The others wrote about it. If anybody didn't get the order quite right, Peter says, I'm here to set it in order. So we can look to Luke for the order, and indeed, John doesn't even mention the bread and the wine. Why? Because Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about it, and he himself had mentioned it in John 6, where Christ explained that he was the bread and the wine. That had already been addressed over and over. John wrote later, and he looked at all that had been written, and he said, there's something missing that the others did not consider important. And that's what he wrote about. And do you know what he wrote about? He wrote about the foot-washing attitude, because when he wrote later on, and he did write later in life, he analyzed what had happened to the church. And he saw that there was not enough love in the church, so he remembered all those things which Christ had spoken at the conclusion of the Passover and after the foot washing. Christ tried to get it across to them that baptism, such as he went through, was not enough unless we get it right with each other. And that's what John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are all about. He added a great deal to what Luke said. Luke addressed the situation with Peter. Luke addressed the situation where they were arguing with each other about who was the greatest. And that was the whole lesson of the foot washing. He said, look guys, I'm going to get up and wash your feet. I'm going to humble myself. You had better do this to each other. This is the way you have to live. This is what it's all about. I'm going to heaven. You're going to have to live with each other. Understand what I've done to you. Understand what this is about. Serve each other. Help each other. As soon as the foot washing was done... A sop was given to Judas, and he went out. But he was still there after the bread and the wine, according to Luke. He didn't leave till after the bread and the wine, and he didn't leave until after the foot washing. And then Christ said, the unclean one is gone. Now listen to me. I'm going to explain to you 
what it is that foot washing symbolizes. You already know what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes my death, the bread and the wine. It symbolizes you dying with me. Now you must walk in newness of life and treat each other differently than you've been treating. I don't have time to go through. In this sermon, Matthew, or John 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, but we've been through it many times, and the whole thing is about loving your brother. John saw that's what was missing. And that's why he said, you need to do this foot washing, and reminded them of what Christ had said. The others got everything down, except they left that out. And John said, you're missing what he was trying to get across to us when we started arguing and fighting about who was the greatest. Don't try to see who's the best or the greatest or number one. Serve each other. Help each other. Don't offend each other. This is what it's all about. Verse 18, I speak not of you all. I know whom I have chosen, but but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. He was still there listening to this. At this point, he doesn't leave until verse 28. Or no, verse 30. Now I tell you, before it come, that when it is come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he that receives whomever I send, receives me. Same thing that we read in Matthew 25, basically. If you don't receive those that Christ sends, you don't receive him. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, that one of you shall betray me. Now Luke says that Christ said this after the bread and wine. Matthew and Mark put it before. Was something out of order? Maybe it needed to be set in order. Then the disciples looked on one another, doubting of whom he spoke. Now there was one leaning on Jesus' bosom, one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. John speaking of himself. He was closest to John than any of the others. Why? Because John understood what was the most important thing in life, and that is love. There's faith, hope, and love. The greatest is love. If you don't have love, you've got nothing. They were missing this still. But John had gotten that point. That was his personality and his character. Simon Peter, therefore, beckoned to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spoke. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, said to him, Lord, who is it? And he said, whoever I give a sop to. And he gave it to Judas, and Judas left. Then, after he left, he began to teach them more. There's no break in the context here. It goes from the foot washing right into the explanation, and it doesn't end until he gets to the end of chapter 17. And in verse in chapter 18, John says, they got up and went to the garden. So everything that Jesus taught them here was done before they ever even left. And what did he tell them? Therefore, when he was gone out, verse 31, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. In other words, I've been betrayed to death, 
and I'm going to be glorified as a result of it. If God be glorified in him, God shall also glorify him in himself and shall straightway glorify him. Little children, yet a little while I am with you, you shall seek me. And I said to the Jews, where I go, you cannot come, so now I say to you. So I'm not going to be here. I've got a new commandment for you. What's the point here? A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this shall all know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. That's what they were missing. They were still arguing and fighting, even after the Passover, bread and wine, about who was the greatest. And he said, you've missed the whole thing. I'll wash your feet, I'll humble myself, I'll love you, now you love one another. And all that he said about that, John then records in far more detail than Matthew, Mark, or Luke recorded it. Why? God inspired John to do it because John was the one who had the most love. And he inspired him to do it because that was the most important thing to understand. It is the greatest thing. So we can go to Passover, brethren, and try to have the right relationship with God, but even though we are baptized with Christ in death, through the bread and the wine, which represent baptism, we are still unclean unless we wash one another's feet. You have to get it right with God and have his spirit in order to serve one another. And if we are not serving one another, and we're putting each other down, and we're dividing, we have carnality. We're walking after the flesh. We are not truly serving and loving one another. And we haven't gotten the point. Therefore, Christ could easily say in Matthew 25, however you've done it to each other is how I am going to judge you. We must get the point. It does no good to go to the Passover and partake of the bread and the wine unless we then, through the Spirit of God, love one another. And that's what Christ explained to them. So we just went through this. I changed the symbols. I'm the bread and the wine. I am the one you're buried with, but you've got to live with each other. And if you don't live with each other the way I want you to live with each other, you're not going to have any part with me. If you don't wash each other's feet and allow me to wash your feet, I humble myself before you. If you don't humble yourself before each other, you will have no part in the kingdom of God. So the symbolism at the Passover is, number one, we are buried with him in his death through the bread and the wine. That represents baptism and the opportunity for eternal life. That is followed by the symbolism of foot washing to get rid of the uncleanness in spirit and mind and attitude toward each other. 
The first relationship to get right is with God, and then we must work the rest of our lives to get the relationship right with man. And if we don't do that, we will have no part with Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. That puts the symbolism of the Passover correctly and in the right order.